Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge. I uh, want you to know something that is important to us, and I already know it's important to you because this would be important to you, and that is that this is a safe place for the questions that you have. You have questions. You have questions about God. You have questions about faith. You have questions about Jesus. You have questions about the Bible. You have questions. I have questions. We all have questions. And this is a safe place for you to ask those questions. We honestly, we don't just say that. We love questions. Why? Because questions lead to, honestly, usually more questions, but eventually answers. And so that's why, actually, we're in a sermon series very simply called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions. We are spending the last week, we've spent two weeks doing this. This is the third week. We have several more weeks where we are talking about the questions that get asked very frequently. These are questions that come to us as a staff. These are questions that people Google all the time. You can look these up. People are wondering the answers to these questions. And today's question is no different. It's actually a question that we don't usually see it in this form. But people ask this question in a hundred different ways. So here's the question. The question is, are God and science enemies? Have you ever wondered that? Now, usually my guess is people don't ask you in that way. They don't come up and say, hey, I'm just wondering, are God and science fighting? Right? People probably don't ask that of you in that way. But here's what they do, or here's what you ask. It seems like science and what God says don't always line up. Right? It seems like people have a lot of questions about the origin of the universe. It seems like people have a lot of question of, if God really exists, why can't we see him? These are good questions, aren't they? Are God and science at odds? Are they enemies? Do they not kind of work well or play well together? Are they competing? So that's a question that we want to talk about. Because honestly, if you look at articles, if you watch TV shows or documentaries, if you look at those and you watch those, what do you usually find? Usually you find one of two things. People are trying to prove why God doesn't exist in some way, shape, or form. Or they're trying to prove some way that God could have done this thing to explain why people think it was a miracle. Have you seen those? I've watched some of those. And they're saying, well, when God did this, it's because the stones were red and when the light shines on it this way and the people probably saw this happen and, and it can make these things glow and whatever else. Have you seen those? I have. And so the question becomes, are God and science really at odds? Are they enemies? Do they really line up? Or, or, or how does this whole thing work? Well, uh, so one of the things that the human race has been doing for quite some time, and I'm, I'm sure that some of you are at least aware of this, but one of the things that we as humans are trying to figure out is, is there life out there in the universe? Did you know that? You guys know we're searching, aren't we? We're looking for that. In fact, it's been in the news re uh, recently that they found another planet that possibly could contain life. And we see this about every few months. They find another planet that could possibly contain life. 
Now, what we have found is the longer we look for life on other planets and in other solar systems and other universes, so to speak, what we discover is that Earth is extremely special, really unique. In fact, improbable that we exist. Really almost pretty much impossible that we exist. Let me kind of unpack this for a little bit. So some of you, uh, admittedly, you're going to love today because you're more of the intellectual mindset and you're like, ooh, I just love to hear some, some intellectual reasons of why God exists and how God works and all that kind of stuff. And some of you, that's kind of today and you're going to be like, oh man, that was great. Some of you are touchy-feely people. Some of you are like, I want to feel something like right here. Well, that was last week. We cried a lot last week, didn't we? We did, didn't we? You know. Those of you that were here or watched online, there was a lot of heaviness in the room on that one. But it was real. Well, today is no less real. It's just a little bit more heady. Okay? So understand where we're going today. Last week, lots of crying. This week, a little bit of mental exercise. Okay? So let me just give you three things about this universe that kind of shows how unique and how special we as a planet and we as a human race are, okay? So first thing, the moon. Have you ever thought about the moon? Now I know, you've looked at the moon, you've seen the moon, it's like, okay, at night the moon looks pretty cool, right? We like the moon. The moon is really neat and we like to see how, you know, the different phases of the moon, all kind of stuff. The moon is really cool. We also know that the moon affects the ocean tides. That's really cool. But there, here's something that I have actually never thought about. When I was looking into some of these things this week, I learned something new. And one of the new things that I learned is if the moon ceased to exist, if it disappeared, you know what would happen to our planet? You know how our planet sits at a tilt like this and it spins on its axis? right? So if the moon disappeared, most experts, we don't even know this for sure, but most experts agree that probably what would happen is our earth, instead of spinning really nicely on its axis, it would start to wobble. It'd start to do this. It would still spin, but it'd be doing like this. How many of you would love an earth that did this? How many of you get motion sickness? <laughs> okay, yeah. And so we would be like motion sickness all the time. That's a lot of fun. But what would happen is we would wobble. You know when you spin a top and the top when it's going really fast, it spins really nice and tight and it's just, zzz, it's just doing this really thing. But then when the top slows down, what happens to it? You know, and then it eventually falls over. Well, that's kind of what would happen to our planet if the moon disappeared. It actually holds our planet steady and keeps us rotating at a regular basis. If we lost the moon, we would lose our seasons, we would lose our days and our nights. Nothing would be consistent. It would be dark, it would be light, it would be hot, it would be cold. It would be kind of like Wisconsin. (laughs) But for the whole planet, some of us are like, yeah, they should have to deal with that. The moon is unique. Without the moon, the one thing, it would actually be catastrophic to our planet and life as we know it would probably cease to exist just because of the absence of the moon. One thing. 
Let me uh, give you another thing, the atmosphere. We don't think about the atmosphere, right? Yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, but the clouds were amazing. Sometimes the sun would break through, and then we'd get rained on. <laughs> Some of you are like, I didn't think that was amazing. I thought that sucked, right? But I thought it was amazing. You look at the clouds and the sky, and man, it was amazing how that we don't think about the atmosphere. But if you think about the atmosphere around planet Earth, it is the perfect thickness and the perfect chemical makeup to make sure that enough of the sun's light and radiation gets through, but not too much, right? If the atmosphere was just slightly thinner, we would cook, we'd be baked, we'd, that would not be good. Or if it was a little bit, you know, a little bit different, then we might freeze. If it was slightly different, just a little bit different. In fact, we found plenty of planets that have sort of similar atmospheres, but they're either too far away from the sun or their atmosphere is too thick or too narrow or there's not enough oxygen. There's a hundred different things. Our atmosphere is perfect. Perfect. The chemical makeup, the carbon dioxide and the oxygen mix, if it changed even just a small percentage, we'd all be gone. We could not survive here. It is perfect. It's almost as if... The atmosphere was designed in some way. Hmm. Let me give you one more thought. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. Have you ever heard of the fact that the earth is in something called the Goldilocks zone? You remember the Goldilocks story? Not too hot, not too cold, but what? Just right. Yeah. Brings back good memories. Or maybe not. Maybe you hate that story. Either way, the Goldilocks zone is just right. There's this tiny narrow band around the sun where we have to stay in orbit. And if we stray from that even a little bit, life is done. We cannot exist. We need just the right amount of heat and light and radiation from the sun. A little too much and we're done. A little not enough and we're done. We live in the Goldilocks zone, this perfect orbit ring. Almost as if we were placed there on purpose. Hmm. Now, it goes far beyond the universe. Some of you are like, oh, cool, okay, good. I didn't know we were going to get into, you know, astronomy here today. Well, maybe you like biology. Maybe you're like, astronomy is not my thing. Maybe biology is your thing. I want you to think about the human eye for a minute. We never think about this, Okay. Your eye is amazing. Both of your eyes are amazing, right? Some of you are like, no, actually one's not. One's okay. I get it. My, my left eye is much worse than my right. I get it. My contact lens here has to be different than this one. I understand. My eyes are not that good, but they're still amazing, and here's why. Did you know that whatever you look at, whenever you're looking at anything, what happens is the light and the impulses that come into your eye they go through your pupil and then they go to the back of the eye, but they get flipped and they get turned backwards. The image that you see, yes, it's see, you see it correctly here, but at the back of your eye, there's 130 million receptors. And this image gets flipped upside down and reversed because it comes into your eye and gets all that happens on the back of your eye. Then what happens, and you can see it on this diagram, it goes from each eye... There's a portion of what you're seeing. It goes from each eye and it crosses paths to go to the opposite side of your brain. Why did God do that? I don't know. But it makes for really cool diagrams. Maybe that's why. 
but it crosses from eye to eye and it goes into your brain in the opposite side of your brain. And then you know what your brain does? Your brain actually takes those images that are electric impulses and creates a picture out of that. And the picture gets flipped back right side up and flipped around so it's not mirror anymore. And it splices it back together so that what you see is actual reality. All of that happens in your brain. Now, what's really cool is all of this happens in faster than that. Faster than that. And your eye is taking this in constantly. It's creating those images that fast. It's incredible. Consider a baseball player at the plate, ready to hit a pitch, right? And the pitcher is, releases the ball. Let's say it's a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. It's going to go from that player's hand across the plate in the matter of like a second. And that player is going to have to see the ball in his eyes, cross paths to different hemispheres in his brain, create the picture, and then the brain has to tell then the body what to do with that picture. It is actually statistically and mathematically impossible. They've done studies on this. It is impossible time-wise for a human being to consistently hit a baseball. And yet, what do we see every day? It happens every day. They're able to hit it. Why is this such an amazing thing? Almost like it was designed intricately that way. See, here's the truth. Astrophysicists and scientists, they've been trying to figure out the probability of all of the different things that have to happen. Let's say the atmosphere, the moon, the chemical makeup around our, our, our earth, uh, the human body, everything, the way that we breathe, the way that we suck oxygen in, the way that the plants do the things that they do, where, you know, how we orbit the earth, how we spin on the axis, the fact that the moon holds us stable. Take all of those things into account and astrophysicists and scientists have been trying to figure out what's the probability, what's the number for all of that stuff to happen, just by chance, happen. Now, as you would imagine, there's a lot of differing opinions on that. There's a lot of arguments over that number. There's no consensus on that number. But here is what is true about that probability. Astrophysicists and scientists agree on this. For all of the things to happen on Earth, for us to exist, it is either almost impossible or completely impossible. Regardless of the numbers, they have different numbers, but they're always in the range of almost impossible to statistically not even possible. We should not exist. Mathematically, statistically, we shouldn't exist. In fact, I want to quote uh, Eric Zacherson. He's an astrophysicist from Sweden. And he, this is his number. And he's kind of in the mid-range, I would say, maybe, maybe to the lower end or to the higher number end. But this is his number that he came up with. He says the probability of all the things that exist on earth to make life exist is one in 700 quintillion. Now, how many of you know what a quintillion is? 
I don't either. <laughs> I have no idea what that, what that number is. And so just to kind of illustrate this, um, it is a seven, 700 quintillion is a seven followed by 20 zeros. Okay? Just so we're clear, that's a very large number. 20 zeros is a lot. One in 700 quintillion. There's the chance that we have everything that we need for life to exist here. In other words, statistically, impossible. Can't happen. It's just never going to happen. Science and God? Enemies? I don't think so. You know why? Because here's what I find. Science, again and again and again, is giving us evidence that what we see should not exist. Start reading about any of this stuff and you will find very quickly that it shouldn't exist. Most of these things are statistically and mathematically impossible. There should be no explanation for how these things happen. And yet, here you are. As I live and breathe, we exist. God and science are not enemies. Science simply gives us evidence of how God does stuff. That's what it is. Science is us discovering and going, wow. So it goes into your eye and it gets flipped upside down and then reversed and then it crosses paths into the hemispheres of the brain and then it gets flipped back right side up and flipped around and then they put it together and then we can actually see what we're seeing. This is amazing. And God says, yeah, I know. I, I made that. But we're like, whoa. Science is simply discovering what God already does. And already knew. It's very simple. God and science aren't enemies. God created science. God created everything that we see. And even the things that we don't see. And the things that are impossible. Let me give you an example of this. So science really just... Science never proves the existence of God. If science proved the existence of God, wouldn't everybody believe in God? Right? I, I mean, in that, wouldn't that be true? If science proved the existence of God, wouldn't everybody be like, oh, okay, we can see God under the microscope. Cool, there's God. Okay, I believe in him. But that's not how God works, and that's not how this works. We all know that. I'll get to that in a minute. The truth is, though, that science points toward God. It gives us evidence of God. It doesn't prove God exists. It gives us evidence. Let me give you two examples, okay? Both of the examples are from the flood, okay? Now, I'm just taking one biblical story. Most of us have heard of Noah and the ark, right? Noah and the great flood. God has to destroy the world. He has to destroy the planet, and so he, just, he chooses to use a global flood to do it. He floods the entire planet, and he saves one family, Noah's family, and they get on this big boat called the Ark. And so Noah's Ark is all about God destroying the earth with this huge global flood, and Noah and his family are safe in the Ark. Now, I want to read for you what it says in Scripture in Genesis chapter 7 
about how the flood begins. Listen to this. Genesis 7, 11 through 12. On the seventh day of the second month, that's very specific, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. And you guys were complaining about the weather here in Wisconsin. Now, what we get right away is it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. So what we know is, okay, that's going to create some major flooding. But I think what we also inherently know is that raining for 40 days and 40 nights is probably not enough to cover the entire planet in water. That's a lot of water. If the whole planet is raining for 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, we've never seen that, so we don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like that would cover the highest mountains because the entire planet was covered in water. But it does say this. Did you catch this? It says, all the underground waters erupted from the earth. Now, right away we have to say, okay, I get rain. I've seen rain. But I haven't seen waters erupt from the earth. Now, yeah, I know you can quote Old Faithful in Yellowstone. Like, well, I've been to Yellowstone. Okay, that's good. Have you seen Yellowstone flood the earth, though? No. We've seen geysers, we've seen volcanoes, we've seen steam, water, coming out of the earth. We know it's there, but we've never seen waters erupting from the earth to flood the entire planet. But this is interesting. I want to bring you to an article that actually was written just last week, fairly recently. It's very interesting in the timing of this. So the article is talking about a study that they've done. They've been looking for all of this water that they believe exists underneath the earth's crust. They've been looking for it for a very long time. And this particular study finally figured out where it's at. They discovered a new type of rock deep, deep down in the earth's crust called ringwoodite. I don't know why they're calling it ringwoodite. I didn't dig that deeply, okay? But ringwoodite is, the, is what they're calling this rock. And I want to give you a couple of quotes from this article. The first one is from geophysicist Steve Jacobson. He says this. He says, The ringwoodite is like a sponge soaking up water. There is something very special about the crystal structure of ringwoodite that allows it to attract hydrogen and trap water. In other words, this type of rock has the potential to hold a lot of water. Now I want to read for you what happens a little bit later in this article. Catch what it says. This is really important. If the rock, this ringwoodite, contained just 1% water, it's pretty low, it would mean that there is three times more water under the surface of the earth than there is in the oceans on the surface. Just let that sink in for a minute. Three times the amount of water that we see in our oceans underneath the earth. Science and God are not enemies. Science is us just discovering how God does things. This article just came out last week. This is very recent stuff. We're just figuring this out. Let me give you one more bit of evidence. So let me read for you what happens during the flood. Genesis 7, I'm skipping down a couple more verses. For 40 days... The floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high, the Noah's Ark, high above the earth. 
As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. That's a lot of water on top of the highest mountains. 22 feet. Okay? Just to give us perspective, that's, that's uh, you know, if you do a basketball hoop or something like that, it's more than twice that above the highest mountains. Now, my question to you is this. If God flooded the entire planet, covering all of the mountains, then it would seem to be true that there would be some kind of evidence to prove that that happened. Am I right? Here's an indisputable fact. You can ask anybody, any astrophysicist, any scientist, any geologist, they know this to be true. We have found marine fossils on all of the world's tallest mountains everywhere on planet Earth, including whale fossils and any other marine animals. We have found them on all of the world's mountains. All of them. They're everywhere. Almost as if all of the mountains at one time were underwater. These fossils are animals that don't exist out of water. And they're on mountaintops. Now, what they say happened, obviously there's a whole bunch of different theories. But what I just read is pretty clear. We know where it happened. We know what happened, don't we? So here's the truth. Science and God, they're not enemies. But it still begs the question, then why are we fighting so much about all this stuff? Why are we fighting about the age of the earth? Why are we fighting about evolution? Why are we fighting about the ice age? Why are we fighting about whether or not the flood existed? Why are we trying to find Noah's Ark? Let's be honest, it's partly because it'd be kind of cool to find. By the way, it's in Kentucky right now. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. They rebuilt one. I haven't been there myself, but I've heard it's cool. Why are we competing? Why are we fighting over this? If God and science are not enemies, why are we fighting? Let me try to illustrate this. So when I was in sixth grade, uh, by the way, when I was in sixth grade, we didn't have this whole intermediate, middle, high school thing. You did elementary school, Middle school, if you were okay, and then high school, right? Elementary, middle, high. That's what you did. Intermediate didn't exist. Right? We didn't even have that in the vocabulary. We had the word in there, but the school didn't exist. And so we went to elementary school from first grade through sixth grade. Some of you are shaking your head. You're like, yeah, I'm as old as you are. That's cool. All right? So I was in sixth grade. I was still in elementary school. And we were out at the, on the playground at recess. And for whatever reason, most of the sixth grade boys, not just in my class, but in the entire sixth grade, most of the sixth grade boys, we were wanting to play together. And so we ended up just, this didn't normally happen, but there were probably 30, maybe 40 boys, sixth grade boys playing. The problem was that the fifth grade boys had all kind of coalesced into a group and they wanted to play in the same area in the playground. Okay? You kind of you get what maybe is going to happen. All right? This is in the wintertime. It's really cold. There's tons of snow. This is in South Dakota. We got a lot of snow out there. Drifts and everything. 
And so there's a lot of weapons on the ground. So what happened was the fifth graders and the sixth graders got into a snowball fight. Now it was mostly fun, but let's be honest, as snowball fights go, we all know how it ends up. Somebody ends up getting hurt and then there's crying involved and then mom and dad have to step in while we're at school. So what happened is this massive snowball fight between like 60 boys, like we're whipping things, we're hitting each other, we're laughing, most everybody's having fun. But honestly ended with a couple of boys crying and a few people getting bruises and scratches. So as you would imagine, the teachers were not exactly fond of how this all went down. And so here's what I remember. This is how it ended. The principal took the sixth graders into the gymnasium and sat us down in the middle, like in the center circle on the floor. He made us sit on the floor and he stood over us and he reprimanded us for a good long time as to why that was inappropriate for us to beat up on the poor fifth graders. And by the way, we pretty felt pretty good about our, our chances and we did all right. We kind of beat up on the fifth graders, I'll be honest, with that snowball fight. And by the way, they took the fifth graders and they had a similar session somewhere else. I don't know how that went. We did talk afterwards, so we knew they had one. But my question is this. Why did the fifth and sixth graders fight? Was it because we were enemies? No. Was it because we wanted to play in the same spot on the playground? Mm, That was part of it, but not really. You know why, why it really happened? There was a couple of fifth graders that tended to instigate things, and there was a couple of sixth graders in my class that tended to instigate things, and they got into it, and they tried to suck everybody else in and got them involved, and we did. This is exactly what we do with God and science and faith. We allow other people to dictate to us an argument. And they say a statement. And I'm not going to get into all the statements, but they say something. And then you come back and you're like, ooh, them's fighting words. Let's go. Anybody ever feel that? Right? They say something. They say a word. They say a phrase. And you're like, oh, yeah. My pastor just talked about this on Sunday. Let's go. Have you ever heard about the moon? And we fight. And you know what it usually is? It's usually a few people instigating and stirring up a few people over here. And then we all gather on this thing called social media. And then we have a good old time on there, don't we? Where everybody loves everybody. How many of you love the comments on there? Because they're just so loving and peaceful. Yeah, right. People hide behind a computer and they become monsters. Don't they? They do. We all know. We've all probably been on the receiving end of that. Some of us have been on the sending end of that. And we fight. But the truth is God and science are not enemies. They're not. God understands science. Science actually gives us a lot of evidence to prove that all of this stuff is really impossible apart from a creator and somebody who designs it all. It's very clear. Science and God are not enemies. Science and God being enemies is more about you and I and what we like to fight about more than what God does, if we're being honest. 
So let me end with this. One of the biggest things I think that are stuck between God and science is this thing called faith. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody about science and, and, and then all of a sudden you bring in faith and you say, well, it, ultimately it comes down to, I know, you want to see God. If, if you could see God, then you would believe in God. But then there would be no requirement of faith. Have you ever gotten into that mix? I bet you have. I have been in that conversation. And they say, but I just, I can't just, I just can't accept things by faith. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about, let's be real for a minute. Okay? Faith and science are very closely linked. They have to coexist. Let me give you an example of that. Let's be honest that it takes a lot of faith to believe that God created everything in the planet. Right? It requires a lot of faith to believe that. If you're going to believe that, there's no way I can prove that definitively. Well, I was there at the beginning and I, I listened to God as he spoke it into existence. It was amazing. You just have to take my word for it. I can't prove it to you. We have to accept it by faith. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. But it also takes a whole lot of faith to believe that something can by chance be created out of nothing without God. Can anybody on this planet prove to you that they can create something out of nothing. Has anybody ever proven that? The answer to that is no. In fact, I read a lot of articles by scientists that said, well, we, cre we, we were able to recreate this proton or this atom or this thing by, by, out of nothing. And then they go on to explain the process of what they had to do to create that. There's machines involved, and there's electromagnetics, and there's all this. And I'm thinking, you created all that stuff with stuff that you created in order to create the thing out of nothing. Never has there ever, or will there ever, be a situation where we as human beings can create something out of nothing. And by the way, even if you could, you're still a human being with intelligence that did it. Think about it. It takes a lot of faith to believe that God created the world and it takes the same amount of faith to believe that he didn't. Faith and science are very closely linked. In fact, I want to give you the definition that, that God gives for faith. This is what he says. Hebrews 11.1. 1, he says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's not something that you can prove. I can't set God right here and go, listen, let me prove to you this is what happens, and this is who God is, and this is what is going to, to go on. I can give you evidence. I would say at Northridge, we give evidence all the time. Faith is confidence in what you hope for. It's confidence in what you cannot see. In fact, let me read what it says next, a couple of verses down. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, God is saying, you have to believe by faith that I, God, can create something out of nothing. It's only by faith that we understand this. And then here's kind of the critical point. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven six, 6. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith has to be a part of what we do. In fact, when it comes to science and God being enemies, the truth is our arguments, the things that we fight over, has way more to do with us than with God and science, as I said before. In fact, the reason we fight is something called pride. If we were going to be honest, here's the truth. Let's just see. I don't know if this is true for you guys, but for me, here's what's true. Because I believe in God, because I believe in Jesus, because I, I walk in faith, when somebody argues with me about the creation of the earth or, or about evolution or about any of these topics, if somebody comes at me and challenges my faith, you know why I fight with them? It's not because I want to impart to them all this knowledge that I have. The reason usually that I fight is because I feel offended. I'm offended. I'm offended that you just called my faith stupid. Now, I know that they didn't say that in so many words, but they did by challenging my faith. And so what I feel like in that moment is I'm offended, and so I want to fight. Why? To defend God? Uh, Let's be honest. What I'm really trying to do is defend myself. It becomes a pride thing. And so what I want to leave you with is this thought. What is required more than anything with this whole God and science issue? The thing that is required most consistently is humility. Humility. That's hard. But humility is very simply taking the position that I, that you, are not the foundation of the earth. If you ask my family every now and then, it maybe doesn't happen often. You can ask Laura how often it happens. She would love to answer that question, I'm sure. But if you want to ask my family how often sometimes I act like I'm the center of the universe, it does happen. They're not fond of it, but it does happen. I don't say that. I don't say, guys, we need to do what I want to do because I'm the center of the universe here. I don't say that. That would be really pompous. But sometimes I act like it. And I think when it comes to science and God and faith, perhaps a little bit of humility would go a long way. Not giving in. Not compromising your faith and your beliefs. Just like Laura mentioned earlier, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when their faith was challenged, they stood firm. But did you also notice when she was reading that? They addressed the king... As your majesty, they were still very respectful to him. I think when we approach these topics, these things, science, we need to do it with humility and confidence so that we help people understand, I'm not going to back down from my faith, but I also understand you may not be in the same place that I am. So let's try to get a little bit closer and have a conversation. 
instead of snowball fights, maybe we should just sit in the snow and try to figure out if we can agree on how to make an igloo or something. I know that seems silly. But in some cases, maybe instead of snowball fights, we should try to build something. Science and God are not enemies. But it requires us setting the foundation, us, aside, and replacing it with the true foundation, which is Jesus. There's an old hymn. Some of you probably grew up singing. Some of you, you've never even heard this song before in your life. But there's a line in it that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You remember that hymn? That's my foundation. I know that my opinion is my opinion. And I have to set myself aside and say, My hope is built. My foundation is on Jesus alone, his blood, his righteousness. My question to you today is this. What's your foundation? What are you standing on? Where's your hope and your dreams and your fears? Are they on a job? Are they on a relationship? Are they on a bonus that your hope is coming? Is it where you live? Is it a project that once you finish, it's going to solve everything? Where's your hope and your trust? What's your foundation? My challenge to you today is, if it's not Jesus, make it Jesus. Because that's the only true foundation that will help you to stand firm and not wobble as we were talking about before. What is your foundation? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for giving us life, for forming, creating this world, this planet in its special, unique way that it is. And God, in this moment, I know that this was a little bit more of an intellectual exercise and a little less maybe emotional or heart involved. But it's important for us to understand that God, you, everything that we see, all of creation, all of science, if we really look at the evidence, it clearly points to none of this exists without some kind of intelligent, creative design behind it. Ultimately, I think most of us understand and believe and, and realize that that is the truth. That you are the foundation of the earth that we cannot be. And so if there's anybody here that's struggling with belief in you, God, 
Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself. Give them evidence to show that you are there with them. God, if there is somebody who's struggling with conversations or, or arguments at work or in school or in their neighborhood where people are challenging their faith and they just don't know what to say, they feel uh, offended and they feel maybe that they're being attacked, I pray that you would give them the words, but more than anything, give them the humility to stand strong in their faith but also love the person in front of them. Help us to realize that, God, you are not enemies with science. We sometimes just tend to make you that way. So forgive us for getting swept up in the argument. Help us to stand firm, but with humility. And God, remind us always that you are the foundation. You are the rock that we have to stand on. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.